Romans 1, 18 to 25 that we'll uh, touch down on from time to time as, as we go along and it's worth having that with you. Tonight, as we continue uh, this exploration through the letter uh, to the Colossians and reach chapter 3, I want to invite you to see here in this passage the power for revolutionary change that has already had its way in your life if you are a Christian, if you are someone who has received Christ by faith. I want you to see the power for revolutionary change that has already happened, change that is continuing to happen even now as we gather, even now as our God speaks to us. He is about this change. It is a revolution of immense strength. A revolution that God has been revealing to us all the way through this letter to the Colossians and it is summed up for us in the words of Colossians 3 verse 1. You have been raised with Christ. I'm not sure how often you've read that first verse in Colossians 3. It is one of the well-travelled letters in the New Testament but Look at those words again. You have been raised with Christ. Could there be a more dramatic statement about your life than those words? You have been raised with Christ. You who live in a world where death in all its darkness reigns, a world where we have seen that in the horrible evil of Libya in these last days, in the tragic disaster that has hit Christchurch, even in our own city, the packed halls of our oncology wards and our hospices, even to our own coming death. See the mighty revolution that God has worked in your life. You have been raised with Christ. They are God's decisive words, his decisive no to death's reign over your life. Because as we have seen in recent weeks, what happened to him on that first Easter Sunday happened to you. You have been raised with Christ. They are words of victory, words that declare the great victory that our faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ has brought about. And here tonight, here is the joy of that declaration. The you in this declaration, the you is plural. You have been raised with Christ. He's not just talking about you on your own. He is talking about us together. His body, as he described us back in chapter 1, verse 18, we have been raised with Christ. This is what he is doing in his world. Back in chapter 1, verse 18, he said, this is the beginning, the, the new creation. The new creation, the new humanity, the church of which Christ is the head. He's the head because as we saw back in chapter 1, he was the the firstborn from among the dead. He and he alone was the first for whom death worked backwards. He's the one, as we saw back in chapter 1, the the same one who right in the very beginning of our world said, let there be life when there was nothing. He is the same one who says, let there be life when there is nothing left but death. Let there be new life, resurrected life. And so behold the revolution. You have been raised with Christ. You are his new creation. And such is the power of his death and resurrection that we as his new humanity have, uh, we're told here in this passage, we have put off our old nature completely, our nature that was made in the image of our forefather Adam, gone. And we put on the new nature, the one that is being made in the image of our saviour Christ. Christ. 
a nature that has so transformed who we are that we can say as a new community, we can say as a church what Paul says in verse 11 of our passage. Here there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free or whatever other division you care to mention. We are a community whose great identity marker is this, Christ is all in all. Everything about this new community is formed by who he is, not who we are. We are those who have received Christ Jesus as Lord. That's who we are. We are those who are filled in him. We are those who died, were buried and raised with him. We've been through a lot together. We are those who have had all our sins forgiven. Chapter 2, verse 13. Those are our colours. That is our bond. We are a community of risen ones in whom he is our all in all. But here's the thing about the revolution. This radical change that has already happened and is continuing to happen in your life. Verse 3, it's hidden. Come to this gathering tonight as an unbeliever, as someone who has not received Christ and look in on what is happening and it's all pretty ordinary, isn't it? Hardly revolutionary. A parish church. Hardly a a blip in forward, let alone Sheffield or the United Kingdom. The, The BBC is not here to cover the revolution. I mean, if it is so powerful and permanent as we have seen as we've gone through Colossians, where's the coverage? Well, says Paul, it is absent for a reason. Who we are is hidden. Verse 3. Our new life in God is hidden at the moment, just as Christ is hidden for now. Our eyes can't see it. The eyes of our world can't see it. It's hidden. But although our new life as his risen body, his church is, is, is hidden, it's no less real for its hiddenness. It's as real as the forgiveness of your sins as we rejoiced in that tonight as we confessed again knowing that we would be forgiven. Your new life as those raised with Christ is not unknown. It's known by your God. It's known by us. Our new life is indeed with Christ in God. And we're told here in this passage it won't be hidden forever either. Any more than Christ will be hidden forever. There there is a day coming when who we are will be revealed for all to see. When Christ, who is our life, appears. So let me ask you, do you look forward to that day? When who you are in Christ is unveiled before your eyes and the eyes of this world. In all its glory, in all its wisdom, in all its power. And what a glory it shall be when life in him is unveiled. But when that life uh, that is hidden now appears, uh, what will we be like? What will be the marks of each one of us and us as a community? What, what, What will appear? Well, here in the passage, let me give you four things that will be apparent on the day he appears. Well, here's the first of them. We will have a new relationship, as we already do. Those who are raised with Christ are raised into a a new relationship with their God, a reconciled relationship, as we've seen throughout this letter. And why? 
Well, this is the glory we've been shown in the last two chapters. Chapter 2, verse 13 summed it up for us. Because we are those who have had all our sins forgiven, all of them. Even your worst day. Forgiveness is without a doubt the most powerful thing that has ever happened to you. And if you want to see just how radical a change has gone on in your relationship with your God, then you need to remember the nature of that relationship with him before you were raised. If you've got your outline there with you, just flick across to the other side and see Romans 1.18 where you will see that relationship described, your relationship without Christ. Two things mark that relationship, your old one. Your sin and his wrath. His steady and complete opposition to your life. Completely opposed to you. But now this is how your relationship shall appear when he appears. Again, it's marked by two things we've seen in Colossians. His forgiveness and his pleasure. You see the revolution? Gone is his opposition and now what you receive from your father in heaven because of Christ is pleasure. Like a father delighting in his children. It is as Zephaniah 3 puts it, one of my favourite verses in the Bible, it says, he will delight over you with singing. That's your God's response to you now because of Christ. And as we wait for who we are as his raised ones to appear, Paul has called us to walk now in this new relationship, living a life worthy of him, a life where we can be confident that we can now uh, produce fruit, the fruit of works that will not bring his opposition but his pleasure even though his pleasure is hidden from us now. It won't be forever. Now think about what we were doing just a few weeks ago on, on Monday night for the, and when we gathered here for the, the mission supper. Hearing what God is doing through his servants of our church, through the mission partners, hearing of that work. Now God's response to that night, on that night as he heard about that work, pleasure, delight, singing. I uh, had the privilege last weekend to be away with the, uh, the musicians for their music conference as they gathered uh, with those from Newcastle and Gateshead and uh, Encliffe as well. Complete imposter, uh, not being able to play a single note of music myself, but again, the pleasure of that weekend. People who have been gifted by their God to serve the church family with the, the wonderful ministry of music. People going away to deliberately equip themselves to do that to lead us to praise our God as he deserves. His response to that weekend, pleasure. Now think about what awaits you tomorrow on Monday, whether it be uh, work or whether it be family life or whatever it may be. As you walk in this new relationship, as you produce the fruit of good works that will please him, that's his response to you tomorrow as you walk that way, pleasure. He will delight over you. There's the first mark of what we will see when he appears. New relationship. And here's the second. First one, a new heart. A new affection. 3 verse 1, we are told that we will have hearts set on seeking things above. You see, such is the revolution of your dying and rising with Christ. It, it's had a profound effect on your heart's desires. Again, if you flick over to the other side and see Romans chapter 1, verse 21, you will see just the, the radical change that has happened. 
See, before you died and were raised with Christ by faith, this is how your heart worked. Although you knew there was a God, our hearts didn't delight in him and they certainly didn't seek him. No, as uh, Romans 1.21 says, because our hearts were too dark and too foolish to see just how wonderful, how good our God is, our heart's desire well, wasn't for our creator, it was for his creation. That's the extent of our heart's imaginings. That's as big as our heart could dream. Our hearts sought their satisfaction in this, not him. It is as Jesus himself says in Matthew 6, our hearts yearn for what we eat and what we drink and what we look like and what we might be in our life and what relationships we might have and what others think of us. We yearn for success and health and home and holidays and children. These were the apex of our heart's desires. The things that we were convinced that if we had them we would be full. The things that we were anxious that they would forever elude us. The same things that disappointed us when we got them. Well, here's the power of our risen life. As he promised, he has by his glorious might given you a new heart. Our new risen life together as his people has an entirely new desire. A desire unlike the things that we used to yearn for. This heart's desire won't disappoint us. We are people whose hearts are set on things above and the reason we're set there, our heart longs for there, is that's where he is. Our king, our saviour. A heart that seeks things above is not some sort of vague, ethereal heart that's detached from the world. No, it's a heart that pounds for Christ. To seek the things above is to seek him. And in seeking him, uh, we seek all that he is to us. Uh, the one that uh, we were told back in chapter 2 is, has God in all his fullness dwelling? The one who right now is seated at the right hand of God, our king. My heart loves him for who he is. My heart loves that he is my king. And here's the third thing that will appear on that day that he appears. Not only a new relationship, not only a new heart, but verse 2, new minds. Minds, again, set on things above. And once more, you need to realise the extent of the revolution that has taken place in your world view. Before you were raised with Christ, this is how Romans 1 again describes you. I mean, what a devastating statement about the human mind. Such is the foolishness of the human worldview. That Romans 1 verse 19, we made the willful decision to suppress the truth about God. Even though, verse 19, that, that truth was plain to see because God had made it so. As such is the futility of the human mindset outside of Christ and seeing him for who he is that this is what we ended up doing. Verse 25 of Romans 1, we made the, the, the worst trade ever. The truth of God for a lie. But such is the power of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. My mind has been wholly renewed in him. Now set on things above. And again, he's not calling us here in verse 2 to some sort of detached mindset that doesn't bother about the realities of the world. I just think about heaven. No, now everything is viewed with infinitely more seriousness. For everything, absolutely everything on this earth is now viewed through the one who is king of those things. 
Now nothing I do or think is insignificant. Now whatever I do, whether it be in word or deed, I do it for my king. And again, while we wait for who we are to appear on that day, we are called to be about this constant work of setting our hearts and minds on him. We as a community are to wake each day to set our hearts again on him. It's his command. He says to you, wake up on Monday morning and set your heart on me again. And when others' desires come in at your heart and tempt you and tempt your heart to make them your first love, set your heart on me. When troubles come or, or questions come or tiredness or grief or disappointment, set your heart on me. Now, given this, let me say something incredibly cliched, predictable and obvious. I reckon the imperatives, the commands that our King is giving us here in these first few verses is where the practice of daily Bible reading and prayer comes from. It is the God-given means of seeking in our hearts and minds the things above. Daily time in the scriptures and prayer is, is not some sort of tick box activity so I can convince myself or others that I'm a good Christian. It, we can make it that. Instead, what it is, is how I prepare my heart and mind for whatever the day will hold. How else can I have Christ dwell richly in my heart and mind as I'm told to here, apart from the word of Christ dwelling richly in my heart and mind? That's where he's revealed to me. Now, I'm going to say more on this next week and I'm hoping we're going to take these imperatives very seriously. I'm going to propose next week a simple and easy and vital way forward in this very simple task. But for now, heed your king. Set your heart and mind on things above. So we've seen three marks, the new relationship, the new heart, the new mind. And if all of those things are where we are at, if we are constantly about this work of setting our heart and mind on him, then we will have a new worship. The more God's grace and all its truth is my delight the more I will let go of the sort of false gods that I cherish in my heart, whatever it may be. And I will say with joy, as Paul does in this letter in verse 4, Christ is my life, not those things. Christ is my all in all. But here's the question. If the revolution is hidden until he appears, what difference does it actually make here and now? if it's all in the future, if it's all to be unveiled on that day, as I live out my ordinary, visible life, what difference does it make to that? How does the mighty power of the resurrection actually affect the visual reality, the visible reality of my life now? Well, Paul's answer in the remainder of this chapter is to once again say, remarkable difference, remarkable change. You see, while the full extent of who we are will only be seen when he appears, even now, even now, the more I set my heart and mind on Christ my King, the more, as we saw back in chapter 2, verse 7, I am rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith, overflowing with thankfulness because of him, the more this, this hidden change will start to come to the surface. Impossible to keep it under the ground. And here in the verses that remain, uh, this coming to the surface 
even now, will be marked by two things. You see it there on the outline. The more I set my heart and mind on him, this is what will happen. I will kill sin in my life for what it is. I will see it for what it is and kill it. And we will speak the truth. Such is the power of being rooted in Christ Jesus as my heart's joy and my best thoughts. Such is the strength of that root system growing day by day that I find the root system of sin in my life grows weaker and weaker. I am empowered to kill sin in my life and replace it with fruit that will please him. And in chapter 3, Paul is going to give us uh, two huge examples of this. And what's fascinating for me as I looked at this week, these are the two very examples that he uses in Romans 1 as well to, to talk about how our hearts and minds work before Christ and he'll do it again here. But now show us the power we have to get rid of those things. And the two examples he gives us are so big, so important for us that rather than try to cover them both tonight, we're just going to look at one. The two things he's going to cite for us is the radical change it will have on our sexuality and the radical change it will have on our speech life. And we'll talk about speech next week. But here in verse 5, see the difference that this hidden reality makes even now. Verse 5. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires and greed, which is idolatry. Again, Paul exposes here how the human heart and mind work without Christ in this area of sex. If you flick over again to Romans 1.25, you'll see how our hearts and minds used to work. This is what we did. We would take a good gift of God's creation the gift of relationships, of intimate relationship, of the gift of sex for marriage. Wonderful gift. A gift leading to oneness, to incredible bonding. A gift that God gave to express the unbreakable commitment of faithful marriage. This wonderful gift. The gift only a good God, a kind God, a creative God, an inventive God would have come up with. Our hearts take that gift and they twist it in such a way that this good thing becomes the ultimate thing, an idol, the thing which is our heart's desire, our best thought, our worship. And don't we as a culture worship sex? Sex is a good gift but it is a miserable God. And like all the idols, as Isaiah says, it is a burden for the weary cruel, relentless and destructive. That is the God of sex that is so worshipped in our culture. Exhibit A, pornography. 30% of uh, internet searches are for pornographic images. 40% of downloads are for pornography. The revenue of the pornography industry dwarfs any other tech company you can think of. You, you pile them together, Amazon, eBay, Yahoo, you name it, pile them all together, their profits, they're, they're not a blip on pornography. It is our God. Everywhere we turn, sex is on the agenda, shopping centres, schools, universities, workplaces, media. But it's a twisted parody of the gift God gave us, a miserable idol. Let me give you a few examples. Uh, we looked at this uh, 
um, a few months ago in, in the morning in a series, an ethics series that we were doing, but uh, let me cite them for you. An example from the, the world of computer games, the, one of the most popular games out there at the moment, Grand Theft Auto, a game that uh, broke sales records, 3.5 million copies sold on the first day, 120 million sold so far. In the latest edition, players get bonus points for sexually assaulting a prostitute, then killing her. Sex is a prize, it's a game, a joke. And consider the iconic TV shows of recent times, something like uh, Friends, you could name any of them, West Wing, EastEnders, Spooks, but take Friends, for example. Uh, an iconic show of the last decade where you had this tight group of friends and all around them were frequent changes of sexual partners coming and going like the backdrop of the show, just normal. Waging war on our view of sex. Or consider the iconic movies of our time, a movie like Titanic, a movie shaped in such a way that you end up cheering on the adulterous affair. And consider how often that happens. Consider how often you end up cheering on the promiscuous relationship, hoping it'll get consummated. Yes. In the end, casual, unconnected sex is all around us. It is our idol. And a cruel one at that, a horrific one. It is no wonder that Paul says in verse 6 of our passage, because of these things, the wrath of God is coming. He looks at what we have done with this good gift and he stands utterly opposed to it. Hates it. And knowing this, we who are his risen ones, we who have this new relationship, who have new hearts and new minds, verse 5, we are to put sexual immorality to death no more. But don't miss the bigness of what Paul is saying here. This is not an encouragement from Paul having shown us his glorious picture in verses 1 to 4 to suddenly say, oh, and by the way, here's some things you shouldn't do. Not some sort of rule to say, okay, no sex before marriage, there's a rule and have some sort of safeguard on your computer, that'll stop pornography. Well, yes, do that. But realise, as we saw last week when we were looking at the end of chapter 2, that such things actually have no power to restrain sensual indulgence, none. God's solution is far more radical than that because he knows sin has deeper roots than that. I was thinking about that this week and I remembered that one of the jobs that my brother and I were given growing up back in Sydney is in our back garden on the lower level there was supposed to be a thriving veggie patch that he and I were responsible for. But over, over time he and I decided it would be a great idea to just have in the corner of the veggie patch a little uh, sort of a bamboo screening for the, uh, the veggie patch. I don't know why we thought that was going to be a good idea. So we planted a few of these bamboo shoots in the corners and uh, slowly over the years uh, what happened is that the bamboo just took over everything until you just had this forest of bamboo behind the, uh, the garden shed. And So finally mum and dad got sick of that and they said, it's your job this summer to kill off the bamboo. Great, we thought. So down we went with axes and hoes and whatever else we could find and chopped it all down. Job done. Next summer rolled round and it was back uh, twice as strong and virulent. And so we said we need to get serious and so what we did, uh, with no real idea how to get rid of it at this stage, we, we got some petrol from the mower and we poured it all over the garden bed and we said we'll just pour it there and we'll throw the match from a distance and... <laughs> worked a dream. <laughs> so quick. Next summer rolled round and there was even more of the stuff. 
And so finally we, we did what we should have done the first time is we went to the, the gardening centre and we said, we've got this bamboo, it's in the veggie patch and we're supposed to get rid of it, what do we need to do? And the guy walked us down the aisle and he showed us this tiny little bottle of poison. He said, what you need to do is you need to cut the tops off them and you need to pour a little bit of that, not much, just a little bit down each one and they're just gone forever. And I reckon very easily when it comes to sexual sin we could act like my brother and I. You see, verse 5 here is not some arbitrary list of things not to do. It's not, oh, well, don't, don't be involved in sexual immorality, don't do this, don't do that, don't do that. What you actually have here is a cross-section of the root system of sexual sin. Sexual immorality, the first one he mentions, it's just the weed at the top. He says you can get rid of that, you can chop it off and you'll think you're done with it, but all you've done is just made it stronger. At the top of the root system is sexual immorality, sexual intercourse outside of marriage is what it's referring to here and Paul says no more of that. You've been raised with Christ but if you want to kill it, you're going to have to dig deeper. And so he goes down the root system. Below that is impurity. A Greek word that is more general and and probably speaks of sexual misbehaviour which is not quite intercourse. The sort of behaviour that we kid ourselves is not, not bad but it's from the same tree. And it's not what's above that is worse, it's what's underneath as we keep going down. Below that is where we start to see the energy behind sexual sin. Lust. I want for something I don't have. I see it, I want it. And below that the root system goes down even further is evil desires. Desires that God has given us, sexual desires, powerful, strong desires. As unyielding as death, he tells us in the scriptures. Given for a purpose. But when we twist them and fan them into flames in context where they are not meant to be fanned, they are desires that become, well, lust in our hearts and we start to go up the tree. You know that moment? Well, some of you will. When the wrong desire is there and you, 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 you get to that moment where you, you start to think about what would happen if it actually came true. And rather than put it to death right there, we hold on to it and we cherish it and we entertain it for a while and very quickly it grows and grows. After all, what harm can it do? It's so far below the surface. Just a thought. And the root system goes even deeper. For below our complex evil desires is something very basic but very powerful. Greed. The unchecked hunger for physical pleasure. No matter how much it's appeased, we want more. It's the breeding ground for evil desires and up you go. You see how the deep root system, how deep it is? When we start to consider being rid of sexual sin, it's not simply just chopping off the weed at the top that will not do. And here's what's so helpful about Paul's cross-section here. Firstly, I think it helps us stop kidding ourselves with sin. And this is just one example. While we may pat ourselves on the back because we've never been sexually immoral, we, we need to see that even if it has not come to the service, it's there in our hearts. And I think what's helpful uh, about this for us, especially those of us who are married, is it stops us kidding ourselves that once I'm married and I'm faithful in my marriage that I'm, I'll not sin sexually. Huge damage is done within marriage by people sinning sexually even though it is well below the surface. 
men especially with warped views of sex formed by the culture around them, who treat their wives as objects and kid themselves that they are pure. The list says, whoever you are, married, single, divorced, widowed, it's there in our hearts. And the energy to see it grow is very much alive because you see what's right at the very bottom of the root system? Did you see it there in verse 5? The fertiliser, the thing that makes all of this grow? Idolatry. The worship of gifts, not giver. Something else has become first in my heart which leads to sexual sin. And I reckon the key in this is to realise with sexual sin, it's not always as simple as saying, oh, well, sex is my idol. I reckon that's really the case. It's really that simple. Lots of idols lead to sexual immorality. The God of relationship, where we, uh, where we are sexually immoral just to maintain a, 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 a relationship that we cherish or to perhaps gain that relationship. Or the God of acceptance, the God of fitting in, the God of pleasure, the God of freedom the God of escape. It's amazing how many men I've spoken to who struggle with pornography, that that is the God for them, escape. The moment where they're free from all the responsibilities, sometimes huge responsibilities, that's their God. The desire of their heart, that moment of escape. How do you respond? Well, Paul says, chop away all you like at the weeds of sexual immorality and even impurity below it, but realise that unless sexual sin is killed at the base, unless you go as Charles and I did to the gardening centre and get the poison, it will just spring up again. To To kill sexual immorality, you need to see it for what it is. The fruit of a cruel, enslaving idol. I need to see why it angers my God so much because it has become my heart's desire, my best thought, not him. I need to see that sex or relationships or freedom or escape is not my heart's best thought. I am to worship him, not this cruel idol. I need to see how desperately I need his forgiveness and see the difference being raised with him has made. I now have new affections and new mind. And seeing all this, what I do is I pour the poison down the root system and be done with it. What's the poison? Well, this is where we're going to go next week. But as we close, uh, let me give part two of this passage away. How do we kill sin? The sin of idolatry, which is what's caused all this. How do we pour that poison down the root system? It's very simple. So wonderful, so powerful. Verse 9, do you see it there in the first few words. It's not just another thing Paul is telling us not to do, it's the very strategy with which we kill sin in our lives. We stop lying. We tell the truth. So simple. It's at the very heart of God's revolution in this world. If you look back over to Romans 1, one more time on the back, you'll see this as we close. How do you think God took you from a relationship that was marked by sin and wrath to one marked by forgiveness and his pleasure? How do you think he changed your heart and your mind about him such that you worshipped him and not some other God? How? Well, you know how. By his spirit. His spirit of truth who took you who was one as Romans 1.25 says who exchanged the truth of God for a lie. He comes along and he tells you the truth. 
the truth about you and me as hard as that is to hear and the truth about him as wonderful as that is to hear. All the way back in Colossians 1 verse 5 we saw this. It was God's telling of the truth that led to faith and hope and love in the Colossians. And in chapter 1 verse 6 it was God's grace and all its truth that is bringing about this revolution in our world. As his people believed the news about Christ Jesus, as they accepted that as true, that's where the faith and the hope and love came from. And so if you're wondering how do you experience this hidden revolution even now, how do you do that? How do you experience the power of the resurrection in your life here and now, the power over sin, one simple defiant act? Stop lying and tell the truth. It is, as George Orwell said, in a time of universal 